This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Gabriel Valdivia at Facebook, what's the biggest challenge that he's had while designing for Facebook? And here's what he said. Well, the biggest challenge for me is actually one of the, the things that, is, that motivates me the most to work at Facebook, um, which is designing for scale. Um, when you design something for over a billion people, uh, there's really no small detail in your design and you have to account for many different types of users. So, you know, designing for that number of people means thinking of ways in which your product will be used that, that you didn't intend and kind of accounting for those edge cases. And that's kind of the, the thing that I find most challenging on day-to-day work. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, the New York Times is looking for product designers across several different departments, customer relationship, customer acquisition, customer onboarding, and more. Base CRM is looking for a product designer. And we also have job listings from Indeed.com. So head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts or when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp is great for entrepreneurs with small businesses, but their team also builds enterprise-level tools and functionality as well. For more information, check out MailChimp Pro at MailChimp.com forward slash pro. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding strong at 35 patrons for a new total of $261 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that has pledged your support and appreciation for the show. Really does mean a lot. Like I said last week, we just came up over the one-year mark on Patreon, and it's been really remarkable to see the support there. So thank you again so much. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like early access to future episodes, free Revision Path swag, things like that, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. That's a quarter a week. Really, really simple. It's a really great way also to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's go to this week's interview. 
I'm talking with Amy Lee Walton, a designer and cartographer at Mapbox. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name's Amy Lee Walton, and I am a designer and explainer and navigator at Mapbox. I work in cartography. I design maps. I also write tests to make sure that maps are beautifully designed and the data is um, properly added. And I do other things involving code and front-end programming and back-end a little bit. The full stack, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, some design, some development. I know maps, of course, are, are super important now because we rely so much on GPS for navigation. I remember all the confusions and the problems that came out when Apple had their new version of Maps, like Apple Maps came out and how kind of weird and bad that was. (laughs) Aside from the obvious, you know, locational things, what's kind of the secret of making a good map? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. I would say the secret of making a good map is having a good use case. It's really important to like be thinking about why a person would be using a map, like other than the obvious, like what do they need to see on the map and what is the most important? So like if you're making a map for navigation, you want to make sure that certain things are highlighted, like larger scale motorways and road networks versus if you're making a map for like skiing or outdoors, you want to make sure that you have differentiation for different types of paths, like if they're walking paths or hiking versus cycleways versus running paths, like you kind of want to have as much detail as you can in a map in the data so that you can cater what you're pulling out and enhancing to that use case. How has technology made cartography better? That's a good question. And I would say probably because it's debatable and I would say that only because, you know, print maps, obviously, like that's the beginning, right? Um, print maps have, or they've been around for hundreds of years and they're, they were really well done. There was also a lot of surveying done at that time and the map designer knew the land very well and was able to kind of pull that out. And then also they could do things manually, like be it watercolors to kind of indicate um, different terrain type textures, um, elevations in a very different way. And so the digital world kind of flattens everything a little bit. But I would say that a great thing, a better thing about uh, digital web maps is that you can kind of see things at many different levels. So you can like look at a global view of a map on your phone or on your computer, and then you can zoom all the way into street level and see like your street or the alley by your job um, or the Starbucks and all the Starbucks on the street um, where you work. So the fact that you can kind of like zoom in and out from um, low level, which is like seeing global into a high level, which is street level, is kind of like actually really awesome. It also presents a challenge for designing because you have to think about all of the elements at those different levels that you're looking at. Is it I'm wondering, like, is it harder now as a lot of cities are, are changing in terms of transit and, and things of that nature? Are those things that you also kind of have to take into consideration when making maps? Yes, you do. We're working on um, new map styles. Well, we just kind of like released a, an, an update that pulls in more data for different um, transit points, mostly railways and, um, and trains. So things to consider with that are the iconography for that. 
if you're in Moscow, they have a certain type of logo for the metro system. And so the map style has to kind of reflect that. And depending on where the user is, for at least our clients, we want to make sure that kind of every place in the world is covered. So that does present an issue as far as like deciding stylistically, like how minimal you can make that visual while still being something that's legible and recognized by the users. Um, And then there's also like specific data sets that you might need to pull in that aren't included globally. We use um, OpenStreetMaps, which is an open source form of mapping the world and anyone can contribute to it. And so, and a thing to consider because it's not a proprietary thing. So we don't have like cars driving around taking pictures and like documenting all of these different things. We're relying on people to do that. So if you think about like places like in India or Nepal, like there are lots of places where some coverage might not be as large as would be good, but then there's also like a lot of people that might want to contribute to that. So it's important to have the data, but yeah, I think that that's definitely something to consider. So talk to me kind of about what Mapbox is. I mean, for people that are listening, I'm not sure if they they may know. You said that they pull the data from, you said open source maps? Open street maps. Open street maps, yeah. Kind of tell me about what exactly Mapbox does. Yeah, so Mapbox is an open source, well, highly open source platform for developers that provide developers with the tools, API, and map styles to create mapping applications. And one of the big goals of Mapbox is to change the way people navigate the planet. That's like a a kind of like big overarching goal. And we do this by providing the building blocks for people to actually create apps, mobile and web, that help people navigate the planet. So what that means for us is that we do things from designing map styles and creating styles that developers can just plug and play and uh, use in their apps, but then also creating APIs where developers can kind of like use an endpoint to calculate different directions for like walking or driving or cycling from getting from point A to point B. So we have quite a few APIs that people can plug in. And really, we just kind of like have a stack of of many things that people can kind of like put together. And we're kind of like a Lego company. We have all the building blocks for you to make your own mapping um, app. Tell me what a typical day is like there for you. That's really hard because days are not very typical. It's a startup. So there's a lot of learning on the job, I would say. Typically, I start out like I have a, a projects that I'm working on. So like usually they're longer term projects. So maybe like, you know, a month long or, or up to three month project. A lot of times I'm working with a specific team, like I'm on the cartography team, but sometimes I might be working with a, a different team or a different aspect of the cartography team. At times I'll be working on um, the data end of it. So that would involve working in SQL looking at the data online at OpenStreetMaps, making sure that data is vetted or available, maybe even pulling in more data. Or if I'm working on a design or a map style, I'll be um, either doing research on some of the aspects of the style. A lot of times I'll do research in print maps to see kind of some of those smaller and finer details that I need to try to pull out in the digital version. And then times I'll be kind of like figuring out how to do something in GitHub or working in SQL, pulling things out of a database or just like helping somebody else. That's another big part. I think every day we use Slack a lot. 
and we have like different channels. So every day I'm like getting pinged by someone that's like, hey, I'm trying to style some contour lines and I need to figure out which index to use for elevations. Or they'll be like, you know, I'm trying to do some better casing on my roads. Or it'll be somebody within the Cardo team that's like, I'm trying to run this SQL query, so I need help with it. And Or I'll be asking someone for help. So at our company, like they're a big part of your job is like, if you're working on something, you're never too busy to stop what you're doing right there and like go help somebody else. What have you kind of learned the most since you started working at Mapbox? I think I've learned the most kind of how to frame problems and projects and, and things that I'm working on. So I'm the type of person where I love the details. I love kind of like the minutia and just like digging and diving very deep into it. But it's been, I've learned a lot about kind of like taking a step back and trying to look at something from a higher level and thinking about like why it's important and what exactly is important of it and how to frame that and get buy-in from other people about something that I might be working on. Let's kind of go back a little bit because I'm really interested to know how you got started with, I guess, design and with tech because it kind of sounds like you're doing both of those things. Um, yeah at Mapbox, but how did you sort of get started? What was your first kind of foray into all of this? I always like to tell people that as a youth, <laughs> I would make greeting cards. That was kind of like my thing. And, you know, I would hand draw them or I'd kind of like collage them together or do some on the computer. And that was always really, really fun for me. So like the idea of like, I guess, designing and kind of like thinking about layout and thinking about like making a printed piece for someone started for me at a young age. And also I think, you know, computers are in our lives like forever, right? Nowadays. And so I think that like I've just always like felt comfortable with computers. My dad worked in technology. And so I was like my undergrad was in information systems. And like I just kind of like always knew that I would want to do something with technology. And I think also the changing element of technology was always very interesting to me. And so the idea that, you know, you might be using Node now and then you, you might be eventually using SQL or you, you have to learn Photoshop to a certain extent and you have to learn Illustrator. So like the idea that, you know, technology is changing and the tools are changing, but you're actually like also making something that's you're just using like a paintbrush, right? It's just like a different tool. So I think like the fact that I look at like JavaScript or processing as like a paintbrush, I think has helped me kind of like bounce back and forth between the idea of designing something and the idea of like programming something. And you went to the University of Cincinnati, is that right? Yes. Tell me about your time there. What was it like? It was good. Like I said, I, my minor or my major was um, information systems, which mm -hmm. is kind of like the business version of computer science. I took some programming classes and I think probably around sophomore year, I realized that I wanted to do design. Like I kind of felt like information systems was more like business, kind of like a little too businessy for me. And I wanted to do something more creative. And at UC, there's the DAP program, Design, Art, Architecture and Planning. And it's like a really good program. And I talked with my dad about it. And we decided that instead of trying to start over again and take another two years and basically start again as a freshman, I would just finish information systems and I would like take a whole bunch of electives. So that's what I did. I took a lot of electives and I finished with a minor in French and a minor in communication design 
and international business as well. And I traveled abroad a couple of times to study abroad for summers. And I also did some um, internships that were, I did one internship at General Electric. And that was an interesting experience because I realized I did not want to be in a cubicle and I did not want to like work on paperwork or do anything that was really information systems based. I wanted to do something more that was fun and like web involved and like web design was really interesting to me. So I think that that also kind of like helped color my idea that I I definitely wanted to work like at a smaller company and I wanted to do something closer to like web design and development. You're talking about your time at University of Cincinnati. You were able to take all these electives. Do you feel like it really prepared you once you got out there and started working? I think it's interesting because I was, I think I'm the type of person that's more interested in education. I enjoy learning things like lots of different things. So I wasn't on a straight path ever, I think, in life. And I think that that was very worrisome, actually, to me. I knew that when I got out of school, I like wanted to do web design. I always was able to kind of like get a job. And I, I had really good jobs that helped me kind of guide me into where I am now. But mm-hmm. I think that during the process, I was kind of worried because I'm like, I don't really want to work at Procter & Gamble or General Electric. Like, I don't want to do something that's going to make me feel boxed in. I want to be able to kind of like work on something a little bit more liberal, but I also want to do the technical side. So that's why I went back to graduate school. That's why I decided to get my MFA because I did feel slightly limited by kind of like hodgepodging together my education in that way. I think that at times having a degree in, you know, said field will help you get in the door more. And I did want to do a lot more design that I wasn't able to do in the beginning. And so I remember kind of like deciding that I was going to get my MFA eventually because that would put me in the place where I would be able to do more of a design and development type role. Yeah, let's talk about Micah. Are you currently a grad student there or did you just recently graduate? Um, I graduated in 2014. Oh, nice. Congratulations. (laughs) What was your time like there? I know that, you know, Micah is one of the schools here in the U.S. that has like a really big, strong reputation for kind of churning out great designers. What was it like there? It was great. I loved it. I actually had been living and working in Seattle before going to grad school. And so going to Baltimore was a big shift. And of course, going to art school and like not having any money versus having money, you know, and working Mm -hmm. was also a big shift. Michael was a great experience. It's a very small school. It's an art school, one of the oldest art schools in America. And we had a lot of students there. They were doing awesome work. I had never really been to a place that focused so much on art. It wasn't even just graphic design. Like the graphic design program was really small. There were like people in painting and interdisciplinary sculpture. It was a very inspirational space. It was kind of like they they teach you how to think like a designer and like the design process, but they teach you by giving you a lot of space to grow. And I think that that was a great experience for me to kind of be able to kind of own my own work and develop my own palette, if you will, of design opinions and art opinions. And then another awesome thing about Mike is they brought in so many amazing designers and artists to talk constantly. So it was like almost every week you can guarantee that there's going to be somebody amazing coming in and and doing a one-hour lecture. And also in my program, we had weekend workshops where, again, an artist would come in or a designer from an awesome firm or studio, and they would work with us from Friday night until Sunday afternoon on some sort of project that we didn't know what it was going to be, and we would end up making a piece over the weekend. 
So it was a lot of kind of like on the fly, like using the creative process quickly and like time limits and restraints, but being able to kind of work through that process yourself and figure out what's the best process for you. Was creativity kind of a big part of your childhood growing up? I'd say probably. My mom was very creative. Like she would make a lot of stuff. She would kind of like make all of my, not all of my clothes, but a lot of my clothes. Whenever there would be a dance or anything like that, she would like make my dresses. And I think that I didn't start to really appreciate that until I got older. But, you know, because like in high school, you're like, Mom, I want to buy something from the store. I don't want you to like (laughs) make it for me. Like, you know, but kind of like her having a sewing machine and like constantly going to Michael's and Joanne Fabrics. Like, I think that that totally had influenced me a lot to just kind of like make stuff. We watched TV here and there, but we really spent a lot of time like making things like whatever we needed. And then like I kind of like started making like um, greeting cards and stuff. So like everybody had their thing that they would make. And also my father did a lot of photography when he was in college. And so he had these awesome black and white photos and like stories about like processing, you know, in a dark room. And I just was like really, really fascinated with the process of making, you know, that at a young age became like something that that was a, a sense of comfort and a place a space to kind of like be you know mm. at a young age I also did a lot of sports and so I think that like sports and artistry kind of like are very much intertwined because it's like the time that you decide to take to like grow your own skill and and the love that you have for it so I played tennis for a long time I think from like age of age seven to like 16, probably like at least 10 years. And I would go to like summer camps and, and play. And like, I played a little bit in high school and I also ran track and I loved running track. I ran the 400 and the 800. And so I think that that practice makes perfect type attitude was definitely around for me as I was like developing as, you know, in, in high school and growing up. It sounds like your parents were also pretty supportive of you becoming a designer. Would that be true? I think probably yes. <laughs> it you know they weren't like, hey, you need to go to art school or anything. My dad actually was like, you need to. He told me what to major in. He's like, you need to be in business and you need to major in information systems. And I was like, fine. So I think that honestly, I think that art and like creativity was kind of like definitely a side gig for like most people in my family. Like definitely my mom, you know making things like she was a nurse. And so she like would work, you know, 12, 14 hour shifts. And then she would also make things on the weekend. So it wasn't necessarily like creativity and art was like something that could pay the bills. But I mean, I think because I'm so technical and because that's had been such a big part of the side thing, like if I was just purely a painter and artist, I think that that would have been a harder sell. Luckily, you know, digital design makes money. So what kind of keeps you going? Like what gives you purpose and motivation to do what you're doing? I think I'm a very curious person. It's funny. When I was hired at Mapbox, the CEO, we had some, an interview process. And I remember I probably met with like five or six people and I was sitting in a room and like people were coming in, you know, back to back, like with their laptops going like, Hey, I'm working on this. I'm like trying to do this app. And I just like downloaded this stuff and I'm like doing this and I'm taking Twitter information. I'm like putting it on a map. And I remember being like, wow, you guys are like really having fun. Like, this is awesome. You know? And then Mm -hmm. the CEO came in he's just like talking to me about my thesis and, you know, 
getting your master's degree, especially an MFA thesis is like the thing. It's the pinnacle of your entire experience. And you're like making this awesome piece. And I hadn't done my thesis yet, but I was working on it. And he distilled it down into three words. He's like, technology, bubbles, like art, creativity. He's like, yeah, I want to make you an offer, you know, right now, because I don't want you to worry about what's going to happen, like when you're, you know, in your final semester. I want you to know that you're going to have a job. And I remember being like, awesome, that's so great. I'm going to already have a job. You know, I'm not going to have to worry about anything. But I also remember thinking, like, you didn't even see my thesis. Like, that's kind of like the most important part of the degree. Like, I haven't even done it yet. Like, what if it sucks? Like, but you're going to hire me anyway. And I think that what he saw in me was the fact that I was super curious and I was like doing crazy stuff, like mixing Arduino and like bubbles, honestly, like that's basically what my thesis was about. Is this like something that you do if you're the type of person that will figure something out no matter what it takes and how long you have to stay up for it? And I think that (laughs) that's probably something that really, really is important and drives me like the curiosity and the desire to know and the desire to play and to like figure things out on my own, I think is like a big, big driver for me, motivation. Do you think that the work that you're doing at Mapbox kind of allows you to do that a bit? Oh yeah, definitely. I think that a few of the things that we say a lot at Mapbox, one is maps are hard because they really are. It's a science and it's, a fun problem. Like we have a lot of big problems and we enjoy solving them. And it's kind of like, you know, the approach to it is, you know, there's something that you have to do and you don't know how to do it, but you do it anyway. And you figure it out and you figure out who to ask to help you. And you figure out when you maybe hit a brick wall and you need to change it and just, you know, your trajectory and you get help and you give help. And I think that that is like a really, really, really hard place for a lot of people to be comfortable in because it's so much easier if somebody just tells you what to do and what not to do. And you don't have to worry about figuring it out. And you don't have to worry about, you know, troubleshooting your own computer. You can just give it to the IT guy. (laughs) So I think that Mapbox allows me to be responsible for what I do and how I do it and to be responsible for helping others figure things out as well. So there's a lot of like personal responsibility and opportunity to grow at the company. Like honestly, when I started working there, someone told me that I was going to be learning more than I learned when I was in grad school. And I was like, that's impossible because like, like I paid money to come here to learn. So, you know, this is where I'm going to do all my learning. But honestly at Mapbox, I feel like, I mean, I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly learning by teaching as well. So, yeah, it allows me to grow in ways that sometimes are, are kind of uncomfortable. In what ways? Well, you know, like I always say that like when people ask me about Mapbox, I say that, you know, when you first start, they give you something and they say, here, I want you to, to work on this project. I want you to redesign this map. And you're like, actually, I don't know anything about redesigning maps, so I don't think I should do this. And they're like, I trust you. And you're like, okay. And then you just like figure it out. And I think that like having the challenge of actually not knowing really how you're going to solve a problem, but going through the process anyway is like something that we're constantly putting in front of people. So I think that sometimes that's really, really uncomfortable. And sometimes you're going to fail, you know, in that instance as well. 
Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a it's okay type situation where, okay, I tried this. It didn't work. I tried this. It didn't work. It's not like I can't do this. I give up. It's more like I'm going to figure this out one way or the other. Either I'm going to like give it to someone else or I'm going to like work with someone else to figure this out or I'm going to figure out a different way to do it. But it's going to get done. And I think that that's that's a rare experience and it's scary. There's a line that's in your your LinkedIn profile when I took a look at it when I was doing research for the interview. And it says that uh, or the line reads forcing the intersection of design, technology, speculative futures and social good. That's an interesting intersection to be at of, of all those different things. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Like, how can we use design and technology for social good? What are some ways that we can do that? I don't know. I think that design is an interesting thing that, that touches a lot of people in a lot of different ways, like the design of your iPhone, like the design of earbuds. Like there's so many things that I think are created and made for people to use and to interact with that kind of change the way that they live and they do things. And I think that there's something really good about that in our society that kind of like pushing the envelope and changing the way things are into the way things could be. You know, there are a lot of creative visionaries and I don't think it's only limited to design. It's kind of like actually taking a lot of risks And I think that like having a bigger purpose is kind of where that social good falls into it. Like, for example, at Mapbox, like we don't really kind of like we believe in open source. And the reason is because, you know, we think that like satellite data should be available for everybody. It shouldn't be something proprietary that only a few people can afford to even touch, you know, because this is all of our world. Like, right. So there's a lot of information that is locked down. And like, I mean, even the government is kind of like opening data and like making it available to people. And I think that definitely when it comes to maps and like sharing information, like there's been a history of like the limitation of like the Western world being the only people that were responsible for dissipating this information. So in my mind, it's kind of like a a knowledge is power type of thing. And being able to align myself with a company that has those types of beliefs, core beliefs, and kind of like doesn't do certain things because they don't align with those beliefs. This is really important. Like I worked in advertising for a long time and like I kind of got bored with trying to convince people to like buy makeup because they didn't look good enough or to like do something that was kind of like push the idea of like consumerism. I wanted to do something that was more applicable to like the way that we live and the way that we develop as human beings. And so I didn't want to do something that was only going towards making money. So I think that considering social good is kind of considering doing things that matter and doing things that are going to like advance the human race, which is like a big thing to say, but I've feel strongly that like the type of work I want to do, I want it to like have done, made an impact on people in a way. Do you think that you've made that impact on people? You know, yes, I do. I think that kind of like being able to be a voice in the space of like what you do makes an impact on people. And also being able to kind of like represent yourself. Like I do think that there is an impact to be made. And there are other like little smaller wins that I think I get from the things that I've done with my life, like just the idea of like being a person that is very technical, but then also is uh, 
a designer, the, the idea of like having gone to get my master's degree in fine arts and still having a job afterwards or having my nephews who are five and seven come to my thesis show and see the work that I was doing and just kind of being them being inspired by going to an art school and seeing that like I think that there are really really small wins that kind of can help validate like when you're going beyond kind of like where you thought you would go and doing something that's very risky but still can kind of pay off and like be an example of like what is out there and what's available. I think that sometimes we can be a lot more comfortable with like doing what's expected of us. So like probably when I graduated with an information systems degree, I was expected to go work at, you know, a certain type of company. And I think that by kind of like deviating from that plan, there's something very inspirational about that. And even if I don't know how I've inspired all the people, like there's a lot to be said for kind of like leading the way or being an example of like a different path that you can take. What's the best advice that you've been given about just being a designer or, or being a developer? What's the best advice you've gotten? I would probably say the, the best advice would probably be just like having the confidence to present your ideas and being able to kind of like find the the gem in what you're doing. I think that it's hard a lot of times to like, well, at least for me, especially being like, you know, an artist and like there's lots of <laughs> thoughts that I might have or ideas that I might have based on experiential things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those times, like things that you've experienced, like so unique to you and you can make a lot of assumptions about that. But I think being able to kind of like articulate the reasoning behind it and get people on board with what you're proposing or doing. Like, even though that wasn't like a said quote, just the experience of, of having to kind of like take into account other people's perception of what you're doing or expectations of what you're doing and being able to like absorb all that and like consider it, but still be able to produce something that you are proud of. I think that the whole experience of being a designer and developer, like has taught me that like, you can always hold on to like what you're doing and be proud of it, but still take into account other people's feelings, opinions, or feedback towards what you're doing. But you don't have to like change everything because they said that they don't like blue, you know? Yeah. Are you where you wanted to be at at this stage in your life? Like looking back at, at everything that you've done so far? I'm really happy with where I am. I would say that like I, you know, like I feel really good about what I do and I also feel really good about what I know how to do because I don't think that that is limited to a company it's kind of like just like a belief that you might have in yourself and your skills and ability and I remember a time when I was like man I don't really know if I'm that good of a designer or I don't even know if I'm really that good at knowing which typeface to pick or I really don't know if whatever and I think that I'm at a place now where I feel like comfortable with the fact that I like to do a lot of different things and I don't like to do the same thing more than once. I don't know. I just, I feel like I know more what I don't like. And I also know what I think I'm really good at. And I I think that before I used to be like, man, I need to pick a thing. I can't just like be programming and, and, and doing this and, and designing. And like, I have to be either a designer or a programmer. Like I can't do both. Mm-hmm. And now where I am in my life, I'm like, actually, you know, I can do both. Like maybe I'm not the most back end program. Like I'm not programming C plus plus or anything like that. I'm not a Python programmer, but 
I don't think it's impossible for me to learn it, you know, like if I had to. And, you know, I don't think that I would have to learn it if I didn't want to either. So I, I just feel like I have a lot more options and I'm a lot more confidence in like what I want to do versus what I would have to do or feel that I would have to do. Who are some mentors that you've had kind of along the way that have helped you out? I've had a lot of people that I think have, have helped me out at different times. I used to listen to podcasts a lot when I worked. Now I can't rarely listen to even listen to music when I work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is like interesting. But I like hearing other people's stories. Like I love your podcast because, I mean, oh. you're interviewing people and they're talking about their stories. Like it's like the ultimate thing for me because I like the uniqueness of life, you know. I like it when people have like a different, you know, drummer, different beat, you know. So I'm very inspired by that. I'm also inspired by, I'd say, like nonfiction, which is kind of like similar to the idea of people doing interviews, like people writing books about, like Wayne Dyer kind of comes to mind. He's written a lot of books about just like dealing with issues in a different way, like personal struggles and personal challenges and like kind of getting to know yourself on the inside. Like I spent a lot of time like kind of going to like different Buddhist meditation classes and, and such, and just like, kind of like thinking about the way we deal with problems, thinking about the way that we approach life and problems and each other, I think is very inspirational and it's been very inspirational. So kind of just like hearing other people's take on how they interact with the world and show up in the world is like very super inspirational. I'd say with, with everything that you're doing, I mean, like you said, the good thing about what you do is that you realize you can work on a lot of different things and have a lot of different talents and not feel like you have to narrow yourself down to one particular thing. But if you weren't doing, I guess, what you're doing right now, what would be your next choice? Like, what would you be doing? I really kind of am into kind of like an interdisciplinary interior spaces kind of type work, Um, (laughs) which sounds very specific, but it's kind of like, so when I was at MICA, interdisciplinary sculpture was like amazing, right? It's kind of like something that I didn't even know, like, I think it's probably kind of new, right? It's the idea of making things that, like making things really, but making things that are like, not even really sculptural, but that kind of live in the space of, of people. So with that, I guess that would be more along the lines of research and development, thinking about how, like, how a smart house would be, or like the idea of the future of how we could interact with our house, for example, what that interface would be like, what that experience would be like. There's also like work, I guess, that you could do around different like retail spaces like retail does this really well museums do this really well as well so like you know you come into a museum and maybe there's a wall where you write different things or maybe there's like some sort of a a digital display that interacts with the way you move when you come closer to it or like like the xbox connect like kind of like using someone walking in a physical space to kind of like change the way that space is (laughs) so i think that i would want to do something around the idea of like using technology to kind of like influence the way people interact with inanimate objects, the internet of things, kind of like being very exploratory with that. And maybe even just kind of like working in education in a sense, like being a teacher and like doing research and like working with graduate students around kind of like explorations of some of these newer different technologies and how you can use like 
the social hive mind, you know, from Twitter to like just people interacting with a space and like take that digital information and make that into a different kind of experience, technology and with physical, physical things. Where do you see yourself in like the next five years or so? What, what would you want to be doing? I really like what I'm doing now. <laughs> I could see myself doing something a little more around the future of things and kind of, I mean, I really am in like interested in hardware as well. So I don't know. I could see myself kind of doing a little bit more exploration into kind of like how to connect kind of like the digital and the physical a little bit more. Amy Lee, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So I'd say definitely my Twitter page. It's Amy Lee W is my, I guess, what handle on Twitter. And I have uh, some of my work up at www.cargocollective.com slash Amy Lee W. That's also linked on my Twitter page. So yeah, they, I tweet rarely, um, you know, not rarely, like fairly often. And I enjoy interacting with people on Twitter. Like, so feel free to like send me something or like, you know, tweet at me, follow me so I can follow you. Those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, Amy Lee Walton, again, thank you for taking time out of your day for doing this interview. I think it was really good for you to kind of share a lot of the, not just the work you're doing, but also the perspective that you have behind the work. Like, I think that's just important for this show in general, but particularly for something where it's a, it's a profession that you just don't hear a lot of people doing, <laughs> you know, making maps, but then kind of hearing your thought process behind why you do it and why it's important as well as just other design topics. I think it's a really, it's a really good thing. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Amy Lee Walton and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Amy Lee and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro, of course, is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It not only helps us get new listeners, it helps us move up the podcast rankings in the design category, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. 
Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.